0: Nobody questions things in this country anymore. Nobody wants to rock the boat. It's all bullshit, folks. It's all bullshit, and it's bad for you. But we believe them because they're pounded into our heads from the time we're children.
1: Children should be taught to question everything. To question everything, they read, everything they hear. Welcome to Question Culture with Brian and Lornette. This is a bi weekly podcast where each episode, Lornette and I will be discussing and questioning conventional wisdom about a topic we believe is important. You can follow us on Facebook at Q Culture One and on Twitter at Q Culture. That's Q U E C U L T U R E. There, we highly encourage everyone to ask us questions, start a civil debate, or provide topic discussions for future episodes. If you're interested in learning more, we also share the links to the documentaries, articles, and books we mention in each episode on our Facebook page. And being that it is the beginning of Black History Month, uh, we figured it'd be a great time uh, to discuss the Black Panther Party for self-defense. How's it going, Lornette?
0: Hey, what's going on, Brian? Uh, Lornette Vesto, you can follow me on Twitter at uh, EvolvingManLBV. And you can also follow Q culture on Twitter and you can also check out the uh, evolving man project where I discuss topics from question culture. And I also deep dive into different topics uh, of the day uh, from pop culture to politics, to religion and everything in between. And we have other contributors and last but not least um, a little bit different from, you know, the normal uh, things, question culture and my the man project website is about, but, um, even the faders is a book that my wife and I released at the beginning of January It's a sci-fi tale of, uh, uh of a woman who f- discovers that she has amazing abilities and has hidden them so long. Um, but it ends up blowing up in her face as she gets involved with a shady government organization. So it's a really cool, uh, novel, uh, check it out. Um, um, very different for what, what my normal, um, that nine to five is and then podcasting and blogging and activism but um you know sometimes you need to get that creative uh, spirit so uh and also cover art by
1: me <laughs> oh that you did the cover art
0: yeah
1: oh damn good job bro you're yeah. a good artist um yeah, thanks <laughs> yeah it's funny that it's kind of you know slightly in the superhero genre because i i tend to watch you know like I like movies with like deeper sophisticated plots but like when i do watch junk it usually is superhero so i've tried to like self-analyze is that like a hero complex you know where you like want to save the world so Kind of vicariously do through these superheroes. I, yeah, wonder, but, I kind of think that's what that's about. But we we talked about them before. Most of the time they're kind of like terrible.
0: So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we blew up everything, um, but hey, we save you,
1: peasants. <laughs> <laughs> we save five people, but the whole city's on fire. <laughs> exactly, like Superman. <laughs> we save Lois
0: Lane. I mean, of course, you know she's gonna you know give me that ill nana later on. But I so I had to save her. I Mean half of Metropolis burned down, but
1: don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an alien God to protect you. But uh, as the saying goes, not all heroes wear capes. And uh, I know this is an episode you and me have wanted to do for a while, that the uh, Black Panthers, um, I don't know, are very inspirational to both of us. Um, so I think it's good to maybe talk about what we, how we came to find out about the Black Panthers and what our experience was before actually reading about them. Yeah, um, and and I guess what we're questioning today is
0: you know this is Black History Month, and you know um, history is a, a topic that, unfortunately, you know it's a saying those who don't remember their history are um, doomed to repeat it. And I think in our in our culture, United States, um, it's a lot of mis misrepresentation of history and historical figures and historical facts, and they're distorted uh, to fit the mainstream narrative, um, i.e., to support corporate America and, and bury very you know reactionary forces. So the Black Panthers organization has been one that's been, like, demonized uh, since their inception and either looked at as a joke or to something to be demonized. You don't kind of hear about Huey, Fred, Angela Davis in in school unless you get to, like, college and stuff like that, Um, and and not everybody has a college degree, and not everybody goes to college. So, um, and and even the people who do, only a small percentage, you know, major in history, and, and, and get to African-American studies where you kind of find out more of the radical history. So we're questioning the fact that we're quest- we're, we're talking about the actual Black Panther Party. Um, good, bad and everything in between. And hopefully um, after this episode, we'll have resources for our listeners to check out, books to check out, articles to check out, documentaries all about the Black Panther Party. So you can kind of you know listen to what we talked about in the podcast if you never heard of them or not too sure about them or what they mean or what they represent or who they are. And you can deep dive and, and find out more. It's fascinating. Uh, definitely definitely shaped my whole political philosophy. So let's go get into it, Brian.
1: Yeah, so, and, and for me, I mean, I, I think I probably had a pretty, I'm assuming many people had this experience where the, at least in grade school up through high school, the Black Panthers were completely erased from history. So, in, I remember even in grade school, junior high, I remember junior high, I did a project and a little presentation on Malcolm X. I remember Martin Luther King, um, you know, learning about him and I have a dream and all that. But we never learned, not a single word was mentioned of the Black Panther Party. Um, and, I don't know how why I thought this, but even if, if it, it was mentioned, they were always mentioned in association as like a race organiz- like a racist organization. So I always thought of them as the Ku Klux Klan, but for black people. So it was just a group of black people that hated all other groups except for black people was like the interpretation. I have. And even I was thinking about the only time I ever saw anything about Black Panthers before college was in Forrest Gump. And even in that movie... It's just like, oh, sorry for breaking up your Black Panther party. So, like, even there, I remember in that movie, they're, like, all serious, stone face. And, like, they're meeting with Jenny, Jenny's boyfriend, who's, like, kind of a scumbag and stuff. So even there, they're not, like, directly attacked, but they're, like, seen as, like, this angry mob of, like, weirdos, you know? Yeah, so, and, like, you know,
0: his his her boyfriend is a scumbag and, like, he slaps her. So, like, look at these misogynistic, like. Black Panthers. Right. and, and hippie, he's, he's and hippie, associated with the Black Panthers, and the hippies yeah. that were hanging out with them—they're all scumbags. Look, at, look, at, you know. And we have the right. good old American boy, Forrest Gump, in his uniform, come back from war, despite his war experience being quite terrible. But you know, he was a he was a simple man, so he's just like, I just want, I just want good. My strength, boat. Little <laughs> Tan Dan, you got new legs. I want the movie. Five Tom Hanks, uh, greatest acting, but also probably highly offensive to uh
1: individuals with autism <laughs> yeah right yeah i don't know if that movie could get made today but probably um, not so really i had no understanding of the black panther party and then maybe some minor negative attributes towards them you're no so um,
0: funny brian like you saying that you thought they were like a black supremacist organization you're not the only like white mid, 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 mid westerner that i've met who like talked about the black panthers and like You know, I had a friend of mine in college um, and I I used to walk around my college dorms uh, (laughs) with Black Panther shirts on. (laughs) Shout out to Huey, Bobby Seale and and, uh, all power to the people. But he was like, oh, the Black Panthers, like, weren't they like a group of black folks who like hung white people in trees? So (laughs) maybe I scared, maybe I scared some white people. And I was like, first off, if a group like that, this in 1960 of black people killing white people, the they would nuke them. They
1: would nuclear, yeah, them. <laughs> right. Send right. a nuclear bomb. I think that's how per- they were always mentioned. Was like there's racial supremacy groups like the Ku Klux Klan, like the Black Panthers. But uh, as we're about to get in here, the Black Panthers were far from anything like that. Quite the opposite. Yeah, they weren't um, a hate group. They Sorry. weren't a hate group, they, and they did a lot for the community. As we're about to get into, but. And then, I mean, that all changed, honestly, with you, because we were, you know, you and me got in that habit when we, that first summer we met where we were working and we would just pass, you know, books back and forth that we recommend each other read. And I went over to your place and you had, uh, Revolutionary Suicide by Huey Newton on your table. Um, and so I asked about it and you were telling me, and I think I said something to you like, isn't that, weren't they like a racist group? And you were like, nah, dude, like read this book. And I did. And it, uh inspired the shit out of me and i learned more about them and to eventually my senior year for my senior thesis for my history degree i wrote about the assassination of fred hampton um so i actually probably know more about this topic than any other episode will have um, <laughs> yeah and it was so
0: interesting too for me when i learned about the black panther party my my really first introduction to them obviously um just growing up in chicago black chicago you know we heard about fred hampton whispers of the black Panthers. Um you know, I was a teenager kid and teenager in the nineties um so you know when I looked at you know saw all about them, I was just I just knew like, oh man, they look cool, they got their braves, they got their they're dress in all black they you know they're ready to go, you know take it to the man um but I didn't know like really too much about them um they had the really kind of movie that came out in nineteen ninety four called Panther, but it kind of glossed over a lot of things and kind of you know you can't really get deep in there, so when I was a little bit older my my time in the service. Um, I had a friend of mine who kind of introduced me to kind of uh, black radical politics as they would call it. And he, you know, told me like, Hey, you should read this book called the Huey P Newton reader by Huey P Newton, the founder of the black Panther party. And like, from there, you know, I read black Panther speak and a couple other uh, books. I got like several books about the black Panthers and I just realized I didn't have black Panther speak anymore. Cause I must've let someone borrow it. So and I just bought myself <laughs> another copy tonight. But what's really interesting is not only did I learn anti-racism from like reading about the Black Panther philosophy, um, LGBTQ rights, um, feminism, women's rights, mm-hmm. um, class class analysis. So introduced me to you know um, socialist uh, democracy and and, and communism and, and socialism and and revolutionary uh, thinking as far as like how to make a more equal and just world. So my my political philosophy. Besides like Malcolm X uh, being the basis, um, despite like the religious aspect, but like his liberation aspect, um, no disrespect to, you know, those who practice Islam or the Nation of Islam uh, for people who might be those listeners. But more of the, the the secular philosophy from Malcolm X around black liberation, but, you know, complete political philosophy and just social philosophy. Um, taken from the Black Panthers, and not by no means they were the perfect angels or anything like that. Um, but they weren't like you know hate, a hate group that like went around killing white people in the sixties. Because like I said, if that would have happened. Um, they really would have got crushed. I mean, they already got crushed by. the I government. mean, that
1: that's how the media portrayed them in a lot of ways. You know, it was like a crazy terrorist organization. Exactly. As the media tends to do.
0: So let's let's get into it. What who are the real Black Panthers?
1: All right, so the real Black Panthers, and and we'll and I, you know, I noticed, or I said in the title, the Black Panther Party for Self Defense, that was their original name. Now there's still the the organization that we're talking about operated from 1966 to roughly the the late 70s, early 80s. It was kind of disbanded after that. There is, you know, the new Black Panther Party, and that's kind of a separate thing. And as far as I can tell, they don't do as much for the community. As the original, now they Panther just come Party around for, for photo ops, <laughs> right? Right, exactly. So we are talking. They were at the time referred to the Black Panther Party for self defense, um, and we're talking about the organization as it existed in the late '60s and '70s. Um, and they were founded by uh, two college uh, students, Bobby Steele and Huey Newton. Um, Huey Newton actually taught himself how to read so that he could get into school, and um, they were inspired by Malcolm X um originally they were inspired by martin luther king too but then came to be a little disenfranchised with his nonviolent uh politics basically and um so i mean basically they started in oakland california and started building from there and did you have more you want to say or you want to start getting into what they actually did
0: yeah well what's interesting about huey p newton is um you know his family migrated from louisiana um and to to oakland california i guess a, a lot of uh Like the great part of the Great Migration, and what's interesting about Huey P. Newton is his older brother was in college and kind of on the right track, where Huey was kind of like a a juvenile delinquent, getting in trouble. Like you said earlier, he mentioned he learned, taught himself how to read, but he was, you know, was a a very intelligent man and controversial. And we'll kind of get into that too. Um, But what was interesting in his younger years, um, he he went to college and he was kind of, like I said, a juvenile delinquent and a petty criminal. And he started to study law or pre-law in, in, in community college. And his goal was like, I want to, in order to be a criminal, I should know the law so I can be able to break them. So it's kind of his thinking was uh, kind of more, um, it, it was pretty, that was pretty clever for someone who just taught themselves how to read. To be like, I want to be a criminal, but like how to get away with the law. I just, you know, learn the law. I mean, it's kind of like our politicians. You know, they break the law by writing the laws and then just changing them like the businesses do. Like, well, we didn't break the law. Let's just change them. Okay.
1: <laughs> it does show a level of intelligence rather than being just like, I'm going to break these laws to be like, I'm going to learn about the law so I can find better ways to, you know, rig it and get around it, basically. And then it seemed like what he did was, because it sounds like he read a lot of philosophy and stuff. So it sounds like it's kind of, even though his goal was originally to learn the law so he could be a better criminal, it evolved into... I think he probably realized how deep the rot went, you know, in society and how really the economic system, how deep it's used and that there's really no escaping it unless you organize and, you know, do what they did.
0: And a very interesting, like, uh, quote from Huey P. Newton, he talks about, like... uh, and capitalism, and, and, and thankfully, he met Bobby Seale and kind of the rest is history. But he, he talked about like our, our current economic system, which is capitalism. And he kind of broke it down like legitimate capitalists and illegitimate capitalists. And he talked about like the legitimate capitalists, you know, buy and sell and own things that are deemed, you know, legit by society. So, you know, you can be like Jeff Bezos and have your, your Amazon. And despite like you making billions of dollars and like paying your workers, you know, the bare minimum and kind of not even giving them like any type of benefits. Um, you you're, that's, that's legit. That's totally legit. You're a business owner. You're, you're a capitalist. And then illegitimate capitalist is someone who is like on the corner selling petty dime bags and society themes. Like, Oh, you're selling illegal street trucks. You need to go to jail forever. Uh, three strike laws, shout out to Joe Biden and his, uh, crime bill and, and Bill Clinton for the three strike laws. But, the thing is, is they both are supply and demand. They have a product. They're supplying it to to the to the community. And, you know, they're selling it. So it's supply and demand. So it's the same thing, but it just, it's just what society deems is legitimate and illegitimate. So that's kind of a, a, a window into his thinking.
1: Yeah, I mean, you can kind of look at it as rich people are allowed to do things that poor people can't because even if i'm like okay so yeah you have you know a small-time crack dealer out on the street who will get busted and go to jail but then look at all these pharmaceutical companies that just sold opium and pushed doctors to sell opium opioids willy-nilly and how many fucking people have died in the opium epidemic it's the same shit but nobody went to fucking jail for that and i mean even look at the shit that happened this week with the stocks it's like you know, all these fucking rich people can do all this speculating and, and falsely drive up things. Think about before COVID happened, all those politicians actually inside of yeah, training. Yeah, inside training. None of them are in jail, but now they're talking about, you know, coming down on these people on Reddit. So it's a it's a it's a tiered system and Huey Newton definitely discovered that and found it out. And I, I, I like too that you pointed out, you know, none of these people back to our hero worship, we're not claiming everyone in the Black Panther Party. Was a perfect human being. Huey Newton is a very—I mean—he's a very—I don't know how to describe it—very polarizing in a lot of ways. I mean, in in one hand, he did amazing things; was an intelligent person. On the other hand, it did seem like he enjoyed you know fighting quite a bit, and seemed like he could you know maybe be an asshole at a party, starting a fight. Yeah. So it, it's not that, but ultimately, what the Black Panther Party did as an organization as a whole was truly amazing, as yeah. we're about to get into. Because, like, yeah, some and, and, super good things, and going to
0: our back to our hero worship yeah nobody's perfect, and no one's going to have it all right and I, I think sometimes in, in 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 critiques of like leftist and radical politics, it's just like, oh my God, you drive a car, you must be a sellout you know
1: yeah, right, right <laughs> uh,
0: yeah. oh you know you, you you shop at like Walmart and it's like you're a sellout. it's like look i'm I'm tied to this fucked up system, but I, you know I can call it out and want it to change um right. versus if, if you like, don't
1: right it's like if you don't like capitalism, why do you have a job? And it's like, well, I have to live and exist within the system. Exactly.
0: Yeah. So it's like we, we, we can slowly change the system. No one's going to be perfect. And then even even then, if you decide to, like, fuck it, I'm going to grow off the grid and go live in Alaska off the wilderness, then they'll be like, well, I thought you wanted to change the things and make things better. So you're just running away to go hide in the woods. So it's, it's a never-win um, situation. So don't think you got to be perfect to, like, want change, um, even those people that we kind of idealize in history where we talked about Dr. King and, and even the folks we're going to get into in the black Panther party. Um, you know, there are flawed humans. They had good days, bad days. Some of them did some amazing things. Uh, some of them did some bad things. Um, nobody's perfect. Huey P. Newton definitely was like cold polarizing and controversial. Um, but also you start an organization that has had lasting impact, impact on American society. Uh, so you can't take that away from, Him or the Black Panther Party So I think it's a very important part of Black history And just American history in general And we're going to get into that So let's kind of get into um, What they did
1: Okay, so what they did, so the the two of them um, started this. They were disenfranchised. They felt that all the, because they had joined other civil rights movements and organizations and working working with them found that they did two they were disenfranchised with two things about previous civil rights organizations. One, They were growing disenfranchised with the nonviolent tactic that Martin Luther King espoused because they were getting beaten in the streets and they didn't understand how if the police are hellbent on beating and killing us, if the state is hellbent on killing us, how can we be nonviolent? You know, that doesn't make sense to just roll over and die. And also they felt like a lot of these organizations were very, you know, college intellectual but often forgot about the poor black people on the street and they wanted to work with they wanted you know they thought that the poor black people on the street were the ones who need the help the most you can't you know just let us some few black people get rich and let everyone else you know fall by the wayside so with that in mind they started their uh organization the black panther party they decided on the, you know, the outfit, the cool looking berets and, and uh, leather jet black leather jackets and things like that. And they built their 10 point program, which was kind of their guidelines they had for the organization. So I can I can
0: share the 10 point program real quick if you want me to. Yep. Go for it. All right. So their 10 point program. And it's just the overview. Um, first point, we want freedom. We want to determine the destiny of our black and oppressed communities. Number two, we want full employment for our people. Number three, we want to end to robbery by the capitalists of our black and oppressed communities. Number four, we want decent housing fit for the shelter of human beings. Number five, we want decent education for our people that exposes the true nature of this decadent American society. We want education that teaches us our true history and our role in present pleasant, present day society. We want number six, we want complete f- completely free health care for all black and oppressed people. Number seven, we want immediate end to police brutality, murder of black people and other people of color and all oppressed people inside the United States. Number eight, we want immediate end to all wars of aggression. Number nine, we want freedom for all black and oppressed people now held within U.S. federal, state, county, city and military prisons and jails. We want trials by jury of peers for all persons charged with so-called crimes under the laws of this country. And last but not least, number 10, we want land, bread, housing, education, clothing, justice, peace and people's community, control of modern technology.
1: Yeah, and I mean, which I, I think is a very understandable list. I mean, those are all things that as human beings we should have access to. And clearly, up to that point in history, certainly, and even still now, I don't think this country has delivered on the promise to black people of any of those things. Um, and not to and mention so this what,
0: what's crazy, crazy. And sorry to cut you off. Is just like police brutality, Medicare for all what they kind of talked about, health, universal health care. These things, you know, the Black Panthers was founded in 1966. You know, it's 2021 right now. So these 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 struggles, these fights, these battles for justice and truth and equality have been going on uh, for decades um,
1: are, are still going on. And still yeah. the
0: struggle continues.
1: Yeah. Um, And so they wanted to put that program into action. What they also did, and what I think is the best of the Black Panther, was what they did for the community. And what they actually did, they went out to their community and started interviewing people and are you know what's what are the problems in society. What do you want fixed? You know, what can we do to improve things? They spoke to people in their community as they were organizing and growing their numbers, and based on the ten-point program and the answers that they got when they would survey people, they started putting, uh, you know, into they started making uh, programs to start doing those things. And so, what I find fascinating too is they. How much money they were able to raise for these programs. So what they did was they would sell clothing, pins, posters, literature. They started their own newspaper that they would sell, so that they could start uh, gaining, start getting money to actually do the programs. And um, I think probably the the biggest and longest lasting program that was awesome was the breakfast program for children. They had free breakfast for children every day. Um, at at its height of the group, they fed ten thousand children a day with free breakfast programs for children um they also started community health clinics a lot of it was preventative medicine but later on they got into actually working with doctors and things to have provide free health care clinics for their community um they funded um they did uh, they funded other things so they had like shelters and stuff that could provide clothing where necessary they provided free transportation for people who needed to visit family members in prison Um, They had free clothing distribution centers. They had free education classes, classes where they uh, taught basic arithmetic and literature uh, reading, uh, law classes, history classes, political classes, and job programs. And um, they did this, they started, chapters started growing all over the country and even started spreading across the world into other countries. And then their biggest and most, you know, probably controversial one, was they started doing armed patrols of the police and that was because up to that point black people had already been there had already been patrols of police where they were following black people you know following police around to to, uh, to watch the interactions the police had with black people but because the police police the police so anytime people would report a problem the police would, you know oh yeah we'll look into it and then wouldn't do shit so nothing would change so what they did being you know well read in the law they read that in California at the time they had open carry, where you, as long as you didn't point it at someone, you could open carry a gun. And it wasn't and loaded. We, yeah, no, it could be loaded at the time. Okay, it could at be. the time it could that that we'll get into that that changed later. Yeah, but yeah, okay. it could that it could you could open carry loaded guns as long as you weren't pointing them at people. Um, and they also because they were super good with the, you know, knowledgeable about the law. They made sure to stand the proper distance away from the police so that they couldn't get charged with interfering with an investigation or anything like that. So they would drive around patrolling the police. And anytime the police stopped a black person, they'd get out with their guns and observe, observe, you know, from a distance and just make sure that the police weren't abusing their community. Also one of and, the
0: things they did when they did to have those um, the police did pull over members of the community or were harassing members of the community um and and you know we'll kind of connect it to like today with the black lives matter movement but going back then um what they did was also thought was brilliant um you know they followed the law they looked at the law they knew the law um they were kind of you know depending on what the police officer was pulling them over for you know they would kind of read like what the citizens rights were when interacting with the police obviously that changed with the war on drugs when you know, our, our country basically gave police <laughs> damn near absolute power. Um, but prior to that, the police didn't have complete absolute power um, prior to the, the war on drugs. So we'll get into Tricky Dick another time. But he, <laughs> uh, I'm pretty sure his reaction from the Black Panthers. Um, but that was really clever and, and, and smart. So, you know, they stood a certain distance, but they would kind of read out loud enough for the person getting pulled over. Can like oh, these are your rights as a citizen, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, you don't have to comply with this or that, you know, just say your name or give them, give them, just give them a little bit so they can't like charge you with something else um, or, you
1: know, entrap you. Um, Mm -hmm. And they did that as part of the the free classes that they had as well. They would talk about the law. So people were very clear about what, you know, because if you're ignorant of the law, you could do all kinds of stupid shit and get arrested where it's like clearly what's legal, what's not legal and, you know, promoted, always follow the law. So that, you know, at least, you know, we can, when we go to court, because they're going to try and, you know, railroad you either way, at least you could have that you were doing everything lawfully on your side. Um, and we're, uh, so, I mean, I guess to, I don't know, I was, yeah, I was just thinking about like more of the classes. So they were, they were teaching a course, something that came, came under the thumb of the the system was they were you know, they'd have these history classes where they would teach people their black history, and then they were anti-capitalist. So that in a lot of their classes, political classes, they would talk about, you know, why um, capitalism is the root of racism. And I, I, I loved about and I'll share a video of Fred Hampton talking to some people who are looking to join the group. And, you know, a lot of young black folks were turned on by how they looked and yeah, we're standing up to the system, you know, so there's a video of two guys come and they're like, all right, we're ready to be in the group. When do we get the guns? You know, we're ready to fight for the people. And Fred Hampton was like, you don't get any guns until you read these books, you know, and handed them a stack of books and was talking about how you need to be educated to be a part of the black Panther party, because if you're not educated, you don't know what you're doing. And you don't know, you know, we, you could start a black Panthers would start a community bank, But if you're not educated to, you know, why these things are going on and what this is going to be used for, then eventually, you know, you don't, you you could, you'll just start stealing from the community bank because you don't know any better. You're just looking out for your personal interests. Where if you're educated, you can get educated about the sense of the community, the goals, how how the law works, how capitalism works. And so they were painted in the media as like this violent military, but really education was always at the, the forefront of everything they tried to do. Yeah. And
0: kind of the piggyback of a couple of things. So, uh, yeah, my mom is 64 years old these days, and um, I remember when I was younger, you know, when she was kind of around my age or, or a little bit younger, in her 30s and stuff, um, when I was kind of old enough to kind of know about politics and history. So, like, you know, my, my pre-teen and early teen years, so, you know, I can finally kind of have that awareness. Um, she was like, yeah, you know, the Black Panthers would she, would, she was one of the kids who went to the free breakfast program. Of the black panthers party in chicago oh, uh, okay. so you know she's one of those children that was fed by them and what i think is interesting is the free breakfast and free lunch program that you have in every public school in america just about and even during the pandemic um one of the, the worries is um child hunger has went up and that's just because the schools have been closed um and also people have lost their jobs and we, we're in an economic recession um and we definitely need to deal with that and in and, and having a new administration is it going to make everything go away in rainbows and butterflies, no matter what MSNBC tells you. So we still got to get out on the street. We still got to organize. Um, we, we do f- f- um, food banks and things like that in your local community. YMCA is one of them. Um, if you if you can if you feel safe going out during the pandemic, uh, definitely uh, contribute to that. But the government, even though they repressed the Black Panthers and used all their resources to like basically stamp them out and discredit them, um, they they took some of those ideas. So one of the ideas they took was the free breakfast and free lunch program that's in public schools today. That wasn't that was started by the government being like, oh, we should feed these hungry kids. And the reason for it, the Black Panthers reasoning, is you, know, you had kids going to school, but are they going to be focused on learning? And they were getting into a lot of disciplinary problems and acting up in class. But the thing was, they were hungry. So you're not going to focus on learning if your basic needs are not met. So their basic needs had to be met food, shelter, and clothing. Um, those are the basic needs of of a human being to survive in this world. And they, and they actually referred
1: to them as survival programs. Yeah, They
0: called them survival programs. So that was the point was, um, getting the kids breakfast in the morning so they can go to school and, and focus uh, and learn. And then also, you know, they did the, and and the government kind of, despite destroying the black panthers that was they like this is a good idea this is probably one of the reasons why some of these students aren't performing to their best because you know they come from poor communities come from rural communities or 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 city communities and their family don't have enough resources and you know it's going to be very hard to study and focus in class you're when you're hungry Um, it's just like it's going to be impossible to do your job if you are hungry so that's your basic needs have to be met for human beings to be their most productive and not just productive to like feed the capitalist system, but even to be creative or anything like that. Um, you still need your basic needs met. So that's one of the reasons why. Also, free health clinics, clinics around the country, free health, free health clinics that was started because of the Black Panther Party. So that's one of the things that, you know, you're definitely not going to learn in school, <laughs> but that, that, that's the truth. They were the first to establish free health, free health clinics, in um in urban communities in the nineteen sixties and seventies,
1: and I think I forgot to, I forgot to save the stat on. But eventually, those healthcare clinics got going pretty big, where they were serving like thousands of people, as well. So that was like, and they were working with local doctors. You know, what was super interesting too that I don't know if you know that I because, uh, I I didn't find it out till I was reading about. I was rereading some of my. Uh, notes from when i did my thesis that a lot of black churches in cities wouldn't let them operate their programs in the churches because they were closely tied to democratic party members and so a lot of the churches they got were in white more republican like churches because the you know the democrats in the city like the you know the powerful you know like the dailies in chicago and stuff and they didn't want to cross them And they knew they didn't like the Panthers. So it's like funny how that little like (laughs) twist of fate happens. You know, I didn't know that. Yeah, so. (laughs) That's really funny. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And that, and I mean, I did want to just because I think, you know, people like Huey Newton might be a controversial figure. But Fred Hampton, the founder or the head, the chairman of the Chicago chapter of the Black Panther Party, he was, in my opinion, as close to a saint as a human being can possibly be. (laughs) Um, did you want to mention it? So I do want to just discuss him real quick. Did you want to discuss anything else about the 10 point program or any of the, the survival programs before I get into that?
0: No, that's if you want to learn more about the survival programs and the 10 point program, I, I work highly recommend the Black Panther Speak by uh, Eric Forner. And I think um, ironically, he's a historian who um, he was the first historian to compile kind of like the Black Panther legacy and kind of from their own words and their own perspective into a single cohesive document. So uh, documentation and, and that, that book is called uh, the black Panther speak. You can get it on the great Satan Amazon. Uh, you can get it on smaller bookstores, um, wherever you, wherever you, wherever books are sold, you can get that. And it'll give you a great um, history lesson into the black Panther party.
1: Well, um, we'll share a list. I got a list too, of some really good um, books about the history of the black Panther party. I I, I though I would recommend starting with, I don't know about you, that but I, I fucking loved Revolutionary Suicide by Huey Newton. I mean, in addition to just being good to, like, learn about the group and stuff, dude just lived a fascinating fucking interesting <laughs> life. So that was, you know... Oftentimes history books can be dry. They're not quite as page turners as like fantasy books and stuff. But to me, that book was a fucking page turner and dude just had an interesting fucking life. Oh ah, yeah. Yeah. He he, he
0: has many ups and downs as a human being, but um, another person who who meant a lot to the black Panther party and kind of like meant a lot to myself and Brian, because he was a, Basically a hometown hero, so uh, there's even a movie uh, coming out about him, uh, Judas and the Black Messiah. I'm worried about how Me they're too. gonna kind of spin Me it. Too. Oh God, they 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 it's, it's gonna be who knows how Hollywood's gonna treat um, Chairman of the Board Fred Hampton. But a, a funny story though, uh, Brian, about the Black Panthers and kind of getting to that. Um, so in my in my Navy days, uh, we kind of we kind of radicalized some some color folks, colored sailors on the, on the boat, some black, Latino, and Asian. Uh, sailors, so it was kind of a group of us, and we were like trade books to read. So, it was about Che Guevara, uh, the Black Panthers, and you know, we had uh, a Filipino cat uh, named Thao. No, he, he was he was Thai, and uh, we would call him Chairman Thao. Chairman that <laughs> <laughs> was up, uh, Chairman Thao, Chairman of the Revolutionary Board. But you know, he'd sit around and shoot the <laughs> shit. You know, my my boy Perkins, rest in peace to him, my boy Alex, and uh, Johnson, and we'd sit and rap about the Black Panther Party. Johnson was from LA, so. You know, he's talked about like how the, you know, the Bloods and Crips, um, you know, when they originally started, they were kind of like subsidiaries of the Black Panthers. So Crips, community revolutionary, com- community revolution and progress, and then Bloods, Black liberation overcomes oppressive domination. Um, and those groups kind of got, you know, changed and turned around, especially in the 80s with the with the crack epidemic. And, you know, the, the criminal element kind of took over it. And what's interesting about the Black Panthers is. They were an organization that kind of transcended like class, and we were talking about Black um, Fred Hampton in a second race. So when I say class, you know, you had the very college-educated students who were part of the Black Panther Party, but um Hugh P. Newton and Bobby Seale, when they were recruiting and as they start to grow, they were going into communities, the pool halls, you know, um, the people shooting dice, you know, the the the, the drug dealers, the pimps they were kind of recruited the, the prostitutes they were like recruiting you know going to the, the, the strip clubs and seedy underbelly of the urban cities and like recruiting people from there because like so they had they bought together like the black boots the, the petty black bourgeoisie so we're getting we're getting a little bit uh academic on this podcast and and also the uh the proletarian or you know just the working class folks and also on um, the folks who are what Huey called the illegitimate capitalists uh to be involved with the black panthers so i think that's their, their ability to unite uh, people across class lines to understand that their their liberation is achieved together. So it wasn't just like, we need just poor black people or, or, or well-off middle-class black people. We need to work with all black people. Um, and and then, then, you know, they also were critical of like the black leadership, just kind of like how Malcolm X was because they knew that they were kind of, uh, as I like to call them, Nazi collaborators, uh, c- collaborating with the enemy. And we have that today with the, uh, I'll go on a tangent, um, the Democratic Party, <laughs> well, but we, we can we we digress on that. We, we talked about that in earlier episodes. But I think that's one key thing that that made the Black Panthers interesting. And you can talk about Fred Hampton and how he kind of tr- transcended uh, race also, not just class.
1: Yeah, because um, I think because definitely at the time the media tried to portray them as this dangerous organization who was going to kill white people. Um, But we'll get into it here, especially with Fred Hampton was they were working with all races. And um, I think it'll be a good, uh, good lead into how crazy the government reaction was to the Black Panthers. And I think it does it show goes to show how, you know, effective they were and how much they really were changing things for the government to come down on them as hard as they did um i am interesting you brought it up i i can't wait i've never been so nervous for a movie um there's a movie about the informant um who led to the killing of fred hampton that's coming out it's called judah judah and the uh and the black messiah it's coming out in february and like lornette said like i'm just so worried hollywood's you know gonna do what they do and whitewash the thing because you know brian
0: they they did that in the black klansman
1: Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. um, Because because
0: that guy actually existed, but he wasn't like a hero. He was actually kind of like a snitch and he wasn't like just snitching on like the KKK, which I think is fine. Obviously, fuck those racist assholes. Um, But he also was an informant because he started infiltrating like the, the Black Panthers. And that like whole relationship they had of him in that movie was made up. That girl didn't even exist. And he kind of worked to like undermine and destroy the Black Panther party, and what really pissed me off is that Spike Lee was the one who directed that that movie, and he has a scene in there where he's just opposed the KKK to the Black Panther where like the the clan the is like, you know white power, white power, and then the Black Panthers are like black power, black power. So like if you're like the average movie goer, you're just assuming all both these groups are just like Advocating for like racism and like you know this is just reverse racism, and ironic the the truth behind it, and that's a shame on Spike Lee for that, so you know you're a little I short like of, him less and less oh, time he's he's, just, he's become a fucking <laughs> boomer, that's all he got his he got his money and became a boomer. I can't yep, believe exactly. he made Malcolm X, and now he's like you know making videos in New York um perma promoting the cops uh, I guess I guess you know I guess either if the money's good, <laughs> the money's good, so you know has the moral technique said. Um, if you try to change the system for when in, it's not you that the system that changes it's you that changes. So, (laughs) so we better not become directors.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Maybe I'm nervous about them because, because that first teaser trailer that they released was fucking awesome. In my opinion, like it, it captured, like I got chills with those Fred Hampton speeches, you know, like the, you know, it seems like the, the, what's his name? The main actor guy who's playing Fred. Um, I don't know. It seemed like he was doing a real good job capturing the emotion of, of his speeches. So it like seems like it's going to be dope. But, you know, time time will tell, I guess. Yeah. And, um, and, and,
0: and speaking about like kind of black classmen in that, um, what when the Black Panthers was talking about black power, they were talking about uplifting black people. And, you know, they encourage, you know, um, Asian folks, you know, yellow power, um, indigenous people, you know, red power, Latino people, brown power. And, you know, with white, you know, oppressed folks who are working class, rural people, white folks living in uh, poor communities, white power, but not in in the racist way of, you know, dominating people, but like uplifting your community. So that's kind of like what they were advocating for, which, you know, blew my mind when I kind of read that and found out about that, about the Black Panthers. So it just kind of broke down barriers like their whole you can't fight fire with fire. Um, you can't fight racism with racism. So we strive to be an anti-racist organization to the best of our ability. So that was one of the things they preached, And I think that's what really made them dangerous. Kind of like when Malcolm X slum, left the nation of Islam and was kind of building international solidarity with, you know, black Brown, um, indigenous communities all across the globe and, and, and the liberation from colonialism and American hege- hegemony or oppression. Um, uh, let's keep it simple. Um, and I think that's what made the Black Panthers dangerous. But um, if you want to get into Fred Hampton's Rainbow Coalition, you can you can break that down a little bit, brother.
1: Yeah. So uh, Fred Hampton and part of the reason, you know, we like him, hometown hero from Chicago. Um, he was a well-read, well-spoken athletic guy. He was popular in school with both his black and white teachers and. Um, and students and in uh high school he noticed that they you know the the school was a lot had you know i think it was predominantly black yet there were hardly any black teachers or administrators so he started organizing a demanding that they did you know hire more black people to teach and it worked the school caved and did um he also Uh, super young early on in high school was really uh, he lived in Maywood Village and it's too far from Lake Mission to go swimming and they didn't have a public pool that black kids could go swimming in during the summer to escape the heat all the private pools were whites only so there was nothing for the blacks so again he started organizing and um, it was later on that they actually finally did they finally did install a pool much later on um, and it's actually named after him now but so even super early on you know When I was in high school, I was just trying to have girls like me and do good in school so I can get into college. I didn't have these worldly things. So to think that he would even, you know, was thinking about these things at this time is astonishing. Yeah, he was chairman Um, of the
0: Illinois, um, Illinois Black Panther uh, chapter and
1: NAACP before the Black Panthers. He was the head of the West of the Illinois uh, West Side chapter, the uh, NAACP. NAACP when he was only 18. Yeah, and, when and, he, he, and he was the
0: chairman of the Black Panther Party in Illinois. He was uh, the Illinois chairman. He was, like, 18, 19, 20 years old. So he was a, a young guy. Like, I mean, unfortunately, he didn't get to live to past 21. But, you know, to be so young and, like, have that type of impact, um, wow, This. You know, like like yeah, Brian said, when to the, be that young. When I was yeah. in high school, you know, I was just trying try not to, you know, <laughs> just trying to get through get through the day, and uh, you know, probably like crush on my high school crush, whoever that might have been at the time, and that that's kind of what I was thinking about. I, I wanted to draw and like you know, um, you know, watch football and wrestling. So <laughs> that's that's what I was doing in high school. So to have that that thoughts at eighteen, you it's know, younger than that. Just to be in high school thinking about, you know, why our teachers don't look like the people from the community. That's the the young man was deep and obviously has a good family that raised him to think about these things
1: definitely um and so he he started to so his um in the in the mid 60s Martin Luther King came to Chicago to organize a march for workers rights and that's when Fred Hampton started to become disillusioned with the nonviolent method. He was marching with them. He saw white racists throw bricks at people and really injure them. He also saw he was marching with an old lady, and someone came up and spit in her face. And so he was questioning. He's like, how can we be nonviolent in the face of all this? And at the same time, the Black Panthers in the, uh, the California legislator um, started to get, um, and Ronald Reagan was the governor at the time, and they were getting Reagan. nervous about <laughs> black, yeah, yeah, about black people walking around with guns. So they were going to make laws so th- to make open carry illegal. And the Black Panthers staged a demonstration where they actually walked into City Hall armed to protest uh, that law. And, and uh, so, also,
0: just a point of fact, guess who was behind those laws and writing those laws?
1: fucking nra the nra
0: the, the <laughs> first second amendment rights we need our we need our guns they're going to take it away and guess what the nra tried to do they tried to take guns away from motherfucking black people yes they fucking
1: did the nra so yeah, so way to take off your mask and show that you're really well, just we, a got, fucking a, we racist got a mind example of, a
0: exa- example of that with philando castillo a, a, a law-abiding citizen who was uh, impactful in his community worked at the school a lot of the students looked up to him um, when the cops pulled him over, he, you know, let the cop know that he had a, you know, his, his legal gun. So, like, if the cop found it, um, he wouldn't, like, think he was, like, it was illegal and, like, arrest him or shoot him. And he still got shot. And they didn't say jack shit. This is a man who was within the law, had a legally registered, registered gun, and, you know, was shot. And they didn't say anything because the NRA, you know, well. They don't, they, don't yeah. Yeah, they, they don't see has yeah they don't seem they like they're all for First Amendment rights when it comes to a certain group of people, and I wonder why hmm yeah, but this this, this so you can read this up, you know look it up yourself if you think we're like making this up to make the n r a look bad um not that we got to do anything to make the NRA look bad uh since they right like, they're going bankrupt anyway, <laughs> yeah, but that's just a way to keep their money that's how rich people do yeah. it right? they're yeah, not really right. yeah. belly up they're just like to for them not to completely fold, so that's how they protect yeah. themselves. Joe Biden made sure that you can't do that for your student loans, but corporations, as shitty as an NRA, can do that, baby. So shout out to the uh, POTUS 46. Yeah. Because we bring the heat to everybody on question culture.
1: So Fred Hampton, having seen this, and then there was all, you know, seeing the protests in California, seeing the Black Panthers for the first time, then uh, a Black Panther member named by the name of Bobby Rush came to Chicago with the orders from the Black Panthers to open a chapter in Chicago. After seeing Fred Hampton speak at a rally, he Fred Hampton was the first person he asked to join, and very very quickly Fred became the chairman of the Chicago chapter of the Black Panther Party. At, during his time as chairman, he ran the breakfast program there, which fed in Chicago alone 4,000 children a day. He opened the um, the uh, uh, Jake Winters Clinic, which was a med- healthcare clinic uh, named after a Black Panther Party member that was killed. Um, the clinic worked with medical professionals to provide expertise in gynecology, optoma- uh, obstetrics, pediatrics, optometry, and dentistry. And um, eventually, the clinic served more than 2,000 people in the first two months of his existence. He also handled the, the a lot of the funds for the organization. And this was all when he was under the age of 21. So talk about, like, holy shit. Yeah, yeah.
0: No, he, was, he did a lot of good things. And was another person who kind of, like, we got to talk about. Who changed? Like we talked about Spike Lee. Uh, we got to think about um, Bobby Rush, the the the, the longtime Chicago um, politician. I think he's like a, a representative, longtime representative, longtime political figure. And like 2020, 2019, he came out and endorsed Michael Bloomberg, the the former Republican mayor of of goddamn New York City, who created the uh, Stop and Frisk program, which I think 90. What four percent of the people they stopped and frisked were black and Latino, and it yielded like maybe one percent of like people who had like weapons and illegal weapons and drugs. So it was just basically a a, a free a program to to give cops free reigns to harass men of color in in New York City all days, all day and all night. And and Bobby Rush came out and, and supported him and called Bernie Sanders a coffee shop revolutionary talk about a, a person who, and, and Bernie isn't perfect by by all stretch of imagination. Um, me and Brian will say, <laughs> he's our political compromise. <laughs> in a perfect world, he'd be the fucking conservative. Because in many parts of the world, Bernie Sanders is kind of like the
1: moderate. Like the moderate. Well, I mean, I, I guess with Rush, it's one of those things. It's like the Dark Knight. Either you die the hero or you live long enough to become you the You got to do it in the Batman know, voice. Uh, you either die hero. <laughs> I live long enough. To see yourself become the villain.
0: And then you're like, Batman, do you I need like a, would, a, a no? I
1: wasn't even Batman. It was the wasn't it the lawyer dude who said The Batman
0: says it at the end too. Oh he does. Because like all when right. like he's like, <laughs> Give it let me put the murders on me. Let me do it. And he's just like, uh um, the Joker has been like killing people the whole fucking movie. Just say Joker killed all these people and you why does Batman have to go? Like it Chris Manolan like he like makes a smart movie, then like does stupid things in the smart movie. So then it makes me question if the movie is smart. But <laughs> we should just do a podcast separate on that. But, um, yeah, so that's, that's Bobby Rush in, in a nutshell. Yeah.
1: And, then, so, and then I would argue Fred Hampton, his two biggest achievements. One, he started a ceasefire between the three biggest Chicago, uh, black Chicago street gangs and um, got them to allow Black Panther members to, to advertise and sell all their stuff on their turf. So, holy shit, like, can you imagine trying to do how hard that would fucking be to, to get these street gangs to allow something like that? It's insane. And even more importantly, he founded the Rainbow Coalition. And what that was, and this spits right in the face of people who were saying they were just a black organization and hated everyone else. He started the Rainbow Co- Co- uh, Coalition, which was uh, a combination of the Black Panther Party, The National Young Lords, which was a Puerto Rican radical group, the Young Patriots, which was a white radical group that sought aid to white immigrants and uh, poor people from the Appalachian area, the Brown Berets, which was a Mexican radical group, and the Red Guard Party, which was a Native American radical group. Um, He even eventually got the Blackstone Nation, which was a black street gang, to join the Rainbow Coalition. And what the Royal Bell Coalition did was we agree that we're all fighting the same enemy and we're going to work together, share resources in order to accomplish the goals that we all want. So, holy shit. And, and really, you know, as we're going to explain later, this is when the government had enough and decided to kill Fred Hampton. Um, but holy shit, like what a fucking accomplishment. And it goes to show how not racist, the organ- that they wanted to work with all people you know, that they recognize that capitalism was a source of racism. And we all, even though we're different racial groups, we all have these this common interest.
0: Yeah, yeah. And it's like my man Immortal Technique says, you know, uh, slave trade was the capital for capitalism. So that's kind of got this whole country started. You know, it was it was free bondage, uh, free labor from enslaved in, in um, Africans and, and on stolen land. So, you know, you can really get a leg up if you if you get you get those big handouts. You know, you got a whole free workforce and in land after you slaughtered the indigenous inhabitants. And speaking of Dr. King, one interesting thing about Dr. King's time in Chicago, um, if you read the book that they never, they con- conveniently don't have here at, at the uh, Atlanta Dr. King uh, Museum, his last book, Community Chaos, I think it was a little bit too radical for the bougie black folks because he, he talked about like he, Dr. King spent some time in Chicago, like, he, he rented out um, one of the um, apartment dwellings in, in the projects. That were up at the time. Um, which, they got torn down in the 90s, late 90s, the early 2000s. But they were like notorious, basically uh, cities within cities. Like they operated totally independent. F- the only time like the gangs basically controlled those, that, that part of the, this, the city of Chicago in, in, in those times. But one of the things about Dr. King is he, he fucking said the most racist place he ever went to and the most racist white people he ever dealt with during the civil rights era when he was alive and he, he talked about it was fucking chicago he got stabbed in chicago so this is a man from from night he was born and i think what 1930 1930s georgia so this is like the height of jim crow and you say the most racist place i've been was chicago
1: <laughs> there are to this day i won't i won't name names cuz i'm sure there's you know some cool people that live there but there are some neighborhoods that are racist as fucking chicago And I mean, to to my suburbs credit, you know, we had a lot of problems, but it was, it was predominantly white suburb, but there were black kids, there were Asian kids, there were, you know, Indian kids. So I never saw any blatant, you know, horrible racism where when I moved to to these neighborhoods in Chicago, I saw like open racism. I was like, holy shit. Like, so I I could definitely can get where Martin Luther. (laughs) No, this this is what he said. And
0: even when my wife and I went to the uh, Civil Rights Institute. And uh, I think it was Birmingham, Alabama, and it had a special, um, they had a special exhibit and it was photos, like photos from, chi- from Chicago when it was the riots um, after Dr. King died. And also when he went down to Chicago and organized uh, there. And if you read Boss, you can talk, you can see how... Uh, Daily did the typical Democratic thing on TV. He's like, we welcome Dr. King and the civil rights movement to our to our city. And, you know, yay, Dr. King. And we we're integrated. We don't we don't hate like those racist Southerners. And behind closed doors, Dr. King was every, you know, spook nigger. He called him everything under the sun. I um, mean, I hate the fact that Dr. King was in, in Chicago, so <laughs> it, it don't sound too different from our, our modern day Democratic Party, where we got to be told that a segregationist is, is a decent man. <laughs> when in the yeah. 80s, he was telling lots son of sons of bitches up and people were like, oh, that was a long time ago when Biden said that. Well, to the, to the 2000s, like when he was an old man,
1: he hasn't apologized. He never apologized for none of that. And it went into anything to fix it. Oh, fuck no.
0: And he said Obama sp- spoke well for a black dude and. And then he said, when you go to an Indian, uh, like a Seven Eleven, you got to speak with an Indian accent. Oh, yeah, yeah, And and we supposed to believe that he's like, oh, he's a reformed, you know, it's fuck that
1: guy. But um, so, I mean, you could say Fred Hampton was operating in the belly of the beast when he was doing all this crazy shit. And I do want to read three quotes um, that he had that I think great, greatly show, you know, the black Panthers viewpoints. So the first one is on non-violence. He says, Black people need some peace, white people need some peace, and we're going to fight for it. We're going to have to struggle. We're going to have to struggle relentlessly to bring about some peace, because the people that we're asking for peace, they're a bunch of megalomaniacal warmongers, and they don't even understand what peace means. And we've got to fight them. We've got to struggle with them to make them understand what peace means. And honestly, I think that quote applies even more today than even back then, because it's like... We've been bombing seven, you know, seven, eight different countries for a decade now. Endless war. Like, uh, this country can't even, the government can't even, we're run by war criminals. Every president has been a war criminal. We, you know, weapons contractors are, you know, fund majority of our, you know, government and shit. So it's, you, you can't have, in my opinion, this is what I respect about the Black Panthers, is you can't have this hippie, Everyone just be nice to each other and it'll all be good. It's like no, we have a boot on our neck by these violent assholes, and so we're gonna. You can't just passively expect peace to come out. You have to actually struggle and fight for it in order to we actually. We just all can't enter
0: peace. the age of Aquarius and sing "Kumbaya" <laughs> and hold each other's hand and just like not talk about racism and 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 inequality and sexism and all the other isms that exist. And just, like, you know, sing Kumbaya and everybody will be free. What? Yeah. What? <laughs> I, I'll dare you. I'll dare you. You're, you're ruining my my point of view. I just want to have – I want to be, like, the secret. I just want to think everything is fine and then, you know, it'll happen. <laughs> so, like, I want to think that COVID goes away. And, like, it does. So, I don't have COVID, so
1: it must have went away. See? Magical thinking, baby. And uh, And <laughs> – and then the next one is you actually said part of it earlier where he was talking about, you know, working with everyone and not being a racist organization. He says, we, we don't think you fight fire with fire. We think you fight fire with water. We're going to fight racism, not with racism, but we're going to fight it with solidarity. We're saying we're not going to fight capitalism with black capitalism. We're going to fight it with socialism. We're still here to say we're not going to fight reactionary pigs and reactionary state attorneys like this and reactionary state attorneys like Hanrahan with any other reactions on our part. We're going to fight their reactions with all of us people getting together and having an international proletariat revolution. Proletariat is someone who uses their it has to sell their labor for for money in order to survive. And so basically
0: everybody who's not like yeah. a billionaire.
1: <laughs> right. And I think I, he points in there too, you know, Black Panthers called police pigs. And I thought that was such a, you know, that's almost demeaning <laughs> to pigs. Yes, it is. Exactly. Like you know, like uh, it's. it was a good way. Can you imagine how much that must have got under those white supremacist skins to like have people, you know, dressing as pigs and like calling them fucking pigs? Or doing stuff, like, that's like that's oink, oink, good. oink, oink. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oink, <laughs> oink, oink, oink. Like, pigs in like, a blanket. Still bacon. <laughs> yeah, like what a good way to like get under their skin, you know? Um but, you know, I mean he says it right there, like you don't fight racism with more racism. You know, you're not gonna defeat you're not gonna get white people to not be racist against black people by black people being racist against white people. You had to form solidarity, you had to get people to work together like he did with the Rainbow Coalition. Um and then the last one I just wanted to bring up was he was talking about uh how important um education is. And I it's one of my favorite parts about the Black Panther, he says, um, so what we're talking about here is to be an educational program. That's very important. As a matter of fact, reading is a, is so important to us that a person has to go through 6 weeks of our political education before we can consider before he can consider himself a member of the party um or be able to run down ideology for the party. Why? Because if they don't have an education, then they're nowhere. You dig what I'm saying? They're nowhere because they don't even know what they're doing or why they're doing it. You might get caught up in the emotion of this movement. You understand me? But you might not be. But you not, might be able to. To. Ugh. You might be able to get them caught up because they're poor and they want something. And then they're not educated. Then they'll want more. And before you know it, they'll be capitalists. And before you know it, we'll have Negro imperialists. So he understood that if you're uneducated, you could get caught up in the movement and be like, yeah, I want to fight power and stuff. But then once you start getting your piece, you abandon the whole thing because you don't have any education about what the whole thing is about. So it was just cool to see him promoting it in that way. Yeah. Um, And then the Rainbow Coalition is really after that is when the system came down on him. And I think that'd be a good time to talk about how the government reacted to this organization. Well, before we
0: do that, let's let's, uh, let's give a little bit more time to... uh, um, a couple more Panthers um, to Honorable Mitchell, Bobby Seal um, Mamui Adu-Jamal Who's still locked up in uh, prison To this day, uh, The Philadelphia native Who kind of st- helped um, Launch the Philadelphia chapter Of the Black Panthers And has been a political activist His entire time in jail um, They say he murdered a cop He's been on death row um, Who knows if he'll ever get out But you know, he's an older man now um, really powerful activist He has a book about his time In the Black Panther Party Called We Want Freedom um, Bobby Seale Who's still uh, very active today Still does, does talks um, across the country um, Is involved in political organizing To this day um, And then their, their controversial leader And founder Well, And also kind of like Angela Davis Who she was never like a, a actual official Black Panther um, and She's like the, the famous scholar And activist uh, Well known in many circus, uh, circles uh, Feminists. Flash womanist philosopher. And it was kind of like, there was like an Avengers team up, as I like to say in one of the other podcasts. So uh, Angela Davis, you know, was uh, part, uh, associated with the Black Panthers, kind of like Stokely Carmichael. So those two were never like official Black Panthers, but they uh, were associated with um, kind of like um, supporting their movement. So they're kind of like revolutionary comrades. So I always like to add that. So they were never like Stokely Carmichael, I was never like a Black Panther. Angela Davis was never an official Black Panther, but they kind of uh, stood in solidarity with them. And that's kind of like when any type of, you know, true people's movements, you need, you know, class, you need solidarity across, across the lines. Um, so, um,
1: I mean, we, we should mention too that the Black Panthers were pretty hip to, uh, like, gender equality too. A lot of the, yeah. the heads of the, of different chapters were women. Women ran the different programs. Yeah, you had uh, I think Kathleen even-
0: Cleaver, who I had the pleasure of meeting um, a few years ago in, in Atlanta uh, With my wife He watched the, um, the premiere of the um, Black Panther Vanguard of the Revolution uh, uh, A really good documentary I recommend folks watching To learn about the Black Panther Party And uh, you had uh, Elaine Brown And obviously Angela Davis Who wasn't an official Black Panther But was associated with them Ashada Shakur So they were one of the first Civil rights groups of that era To put women in leadership positions um, Because And even 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 SNCC and um, Dr. King's organizations and a lot of other older civil rights organizations from the fifties were still kind of very conservative, and you know, men were in the front, women were in the back, and you know, to and the, and the Black Panthers weren't perfect. And then, let's say they were all like anti anti sexist. Um, these were people of their time, um, but they you know they they put a, a big step forward, um, which was revolutionary in the time to like put women in leadership positions.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
0: And then the last I want not you know, to, to kind of discuss, um, the founder, uh, Huey P. Newton. And, you know, um, he talked about kind of, um, the black Panthers role in inspiring poor and oppressed people to combat racism and, and white supremacy. And the quote from him is black men and women who refuse to live under oppression are dangerous to white society because they become symbols of hope for their brothers and sisters and inspiring others to follow their example. So that's kind of like, um, what, you know, he hoped, him and Bobby still hope that the um, Black Panther Party for self-defense, and the reason they called it the self, uh, ori- originally called it the Black Panther Party for self-defense was because of those uh, patrols, um, uh, patrolling the police, and this is because police brutality, uh, big surprise, was a problem back then, uh, just like it is now, so, you know, it seems the more things change, the more they stay the same. Um, so that's why they were called that, and that was their uh, original purpose to Police to police. Um, and then he talks about kind of um, what the Black Panther Party is, UP News. So the Black Panther Party, which is a revolutionary group of black people, realized that we have an identity. We realize our black heritage in order to give strength to move on in progress. As far as we turn into the old African co- culture, it's unnecessary. It's not advantageous in many respects. We believe that culture itself will not liberate us. going to need some stronger stuff so i think that's where the survival programs came in so it wasn't just like let's learn about africa and learn about ourselves so black pride black love this is not in a say to denigrate other races or other groups of people this is uplift the black people but also um more than just learning about our culture and being proud of it we have to you know uplift our communities and that's when the survival programs um took him took into um into play and like in the 1970s um, Huey P. Newton kind of was in and out of jail, obviously being the leader of of one of the most uh, controversial and most attacked groups, the Black Panther Party. And if you read his book, Revolutionary Suicide, um, he, he was put into solitary confinement quite a lot and and beat up and harassed by cops. Um, but also had his um, his consciousness expand while he was in prison, did a lot of writing and reading and kind of, um, you know, took the Black Panther Party into a deeper political um um, future, um, with democratic socialism, uh, community interconnectedness, connectedness, uh, services for the poor, including the free lunch programs and urban clinics. Um, but, you know, that all came to a, to a, to a head. And we can talk about the government repression of the Black Panther Party. And before we get into that, Brian, um, since, you know, this election season was very crazy, and one of the candidates was a one Senator Bernie Sanders who in, in America is basically like fucking, according to like most non-aware folks, <laughs> is like fucking Che Guevara. Like, oh my God, he's so leftist. Oh my God, he wants to give people free healthcare. Oh my God, he wants to tax the rich. And I'm like, yeah, we should tax the rich by like 90%. Uh, so that that's revolutionary. Not like what he was saying, but like, let's tax him by like 30%. Oh my God, he's a socialist, get him. But um, he wasn't like, when people always talk about like, so when Bernie Sanders rose this fame, there was a lot of disparaging of folks who love, are into radical politics and left leaning politics. And when I say left, a uh, leftist, I don't mean like, you know, Democrats or like liberals or it's just like, oh my God, we just want like token representation to feel good and symbolic victory. So like, oh my God, we have a, a black secretary of defense. So yay. So now brown and black people can join in the oppression of other brown and black people across the globe. But only a few of them, not all of them, <laughs> only the ones that think like us. <laughs> We're not going to have any uh, Fred Hamptons joining our um, Democratic Party. Goddammit, damn um, No, 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 no. But um, they always like you leftists always lose. They don't know how to work within the system. Leftists lose because the moderates and the conservatives and the reactionary forces come together to crush their movements when they're building solidarity. And the Black Panther Party and their repression in the 1970s and 60s is a prime example of that. So let's kind of get into it.
1: Yeah, so um, really, so, you know, the Black Panthers were really attacking the system on all fronts. They were trying to using armed resistance to try and stop police brutality, which is trying to stop oppression by the state they were educating people they were starting socialist programs free breakfast programs so that the community was becoming more self-reliant they stopped you know shopping at stores as much because they were buying their materials and things or getting their materials so it was affecting business so really it was you know affecting the state on all fronts so they came down on them probably harder than i've ever seen um j they use the media as they always do to paint the panthers as dangerous racist terrorists j edgar hoover the head of the fbi called them the greatest in, threat to the internal security of the country which it's fucking hilarious to think a group that's like giving children free breakfast like oh my god they're dangerous threats to the country you know it's like what kind of country do you have bro <laughs> Well spike you know? lee
0: did is uh, back when he was sort of okay uh did the he did a one-man show uh, with the actor whose name i forget but a really good actor um, Should have got more roles But he played Huey P. Newton And he talked about what J. Edgar H- H- Hoover saying uh, The most dangerous threat To internalized security Internal security Is the Black Panther Party And it's like And he was playing Huey P. Newton it's like Yeah that, that, that J. Edgar H- Hoover What he says The most dangerous thing In America Is feeding kids grits <laughs> <laughs> and, I, I, and
1: I guess so They're goddamn Feeding those children grits And they're, they're getting food Fuck them Destroy them yep. Crush them And so what the FBI did was develop the COINTEL program, which was the counterintelligence program. And its goal was to use surveillance, infiltration, perjury, police harassment, and many other tactics that were designed to undermine Panther leadership and destroy the Black Panther Party. And the only reason we even know about COINTELPRO is because some activists broke into government buildings and stole the documents that we now see. And I actually, when I was doing my research for my Fred Hampton thesis, I got to go in and see some of the original documents and stuff. And it is fucking wild how much has been redacted. Like, you know, every page would be full of words and I would say like 90% of it was like blacked out and like shit you couldn't read anymore. So, you know, this was highly secretive stuff that we would have never known about. I mean, now we know. COINTELPRO was the reason they killed Fred Hampton, Martin Luther King. Just basically any dissent during the '60s fell under the umbrella of COINTELPRO. Pro. speaking of funny um,
0: thing about that, Brian. Uh, so the 1960s and '70s, they had this these surveillance programs, and they were, you know, targeting um, black activists, um, whether they were the Dr. King Nonviolent um, Student Coalition, or you know the uh, Stokely Carmichaels, the Angela Davis's or the Black Panthers of the world. I, I remember watching that um, documentary about Ted Bundy. And he was kind of doing his crazy shit back in the, the 70s. And there was a guy in a documentary, one of the police officers they were interviewing. Um, he was, and he was from back then. He was a police officer in those days. He was kind of like a, a big, big higher up with the FBI at this time. And he's just, you know what he fucking had the nerve to say? He's like, well, you know, because like Tom, 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 Ted Bundy like walked out of jail like two or three times, just like fucking escape.
1: Yeah, he just like jumped out. of Yeah, just
0: like, all right, I'm going. <laughs> yeah. But the fucking thing they say is like, well, you know, in the 70s, we just didn't have that type of fucking surveillance technology and it's fucking bullshit they were tapping Malcolm X's phone they were tapping Martin Luther King's phone they can't tell Pro mm-hmm. letters to like tell him to kill himself because he's having a yep. illicit affairs um, they even set up like a fake shootout um, with Eldridge Cleaver end up becoming one of the uh, ministers of information for the Black Panther Party and he was a very controversial figure His book called Soul on Ice he is also one of those people who live long enough to become the villain but I would say kind of he was kind of always a villain like he was he was a little insane he went to jail for like sexual assault, and one of his things was he practiced raping black women and then move on to like raping white women so he was kind of nuts to begin with, but he ended up being part of the Black Panthers because you know most of their ranks a lot of their ranks were people from from the lower classes and um you know a black black market economy um but he was a very articulate very you know intellectual speaker so he was he was kind of i would say he might have been like kind of a, a sociopath. Um, but he split from, he split the Black Panther in two from Huey P Newton's direction who wanted to go into like intercommunalism and survival programs where, you know, Eldridge Cleaver wanted to like, um, you know, be more, you know, militant and confrontational with the police. But the thing is with Pro, we don't know how true this is. And was this just kind of fostered because they tried yeah. to like, they sent letters that was apparently from Huey to Eldridge to Eldridge to Huey, Huey. That's saying, you know, you're, you're you're taking the party in the wrong direction. We need to be – so we don't know if this is, like, what's real and what's that happened,
1: not. That happened with Fred Hampton trying to form that Rainbow Coalition, too, where they would send fake letters from one group to another or do fake phone calls where they were pretending to be certain people to try and drive a wedge yeah. in between and the They even staged
0: a shootout in front of Huey P. Newton's apartment, like, in the early 70s. Um, and, and to make it think that it was, like – It was just Cleaver trying to set him up to get shot. Like, it was all type of crazy shit when you read more about the repression of the Black Panthers.
1: I mean, it's crazy, too. uh, The year leading up to his death, they would harass Fred Hampton while he was driving so much that Fred stopped driving because he knew anytime he'd get in a car, the police would just pull him over and harass him. So he's like, fuck it. I'm not even going to drive. Um As part of probe, the police would raid the home and offices with false warrants. Uh, They would say things like, oh, there's a fugitive who's staying here. You know, there was no fugitive or you have illegal weapons stored there or something. So they'd get these false warrants and then use them to raid their houses and offices. When they'd go into the office and raid them, they would arrest uh, the the people working there and then bring them back to the police station, beat them, torture them. Um, they would destroy the foods meant for the breakfast programs, steal any money that they had, any funds that they had on hand. Um, obviously, and the biggest one, constantly arresting members of the Black Panther Party just on trump trumped up charges. Just keep them separated in prison so they can't do anything. So all these false arrests um, in the in the 18 month period between 67 and 68, the police had murdered 26 Panthers. Uh, they had attempted to murder Fred Hampton. Um And then on December 4th, 1969, they were successful. And this came out uh, during the trial afterwards that all the way up to the FBI, they had ordered the execution of Fred Hampton. Um, So what they did was uh, they had um, first there was an infiltrator, which is what the movie Judah and and the Black Messiah is going to be about. They had an infiltrator who was actually Fred Hampton's bodyguard who gave them the layout of Fred's home, how everything was laid out. And then he drugged him so that he was passed out. Um, when the raid happened and they just, um, the police came in, just came in shooting, just fired. I think it was a hundred rounds into the apartment. Um, it, it struck, there were a few people staying with Fred, including his pregnant wife. Um, they struck and killed, um, one uh, Mark Clark, another black Panther who was in the apartment. Uh, he was killed when they were shooting through everyone took cover. Then finally they started screaming that there was a pregnant lady in there, you know, Fred Hampton's wife. So they stopped shooting, pulled everyone out, everyone out of the, the rooms, um Fred Hampton was passed out because he was drugged, and then they shot him twice in the head um, and killed him. and And it came out in trial and through Cointelpro that that had that the Chicago police killed him on orders from the FBI, coming from J. Edgar Hoover, possibly even higher up uh, in the government, like the president and stuff. Um, and of course, the police lied about the whole thing. Uh, they said that they went there to uh, with a warrant, but that the Black Panthers had shot at them first. So then they, you know you know uh, return fire and things like that but actually uh fred's lawyers opened up uh his apartment to uh all the to the public and they showed him all the evidence and based on the bullet holes um all like it was like 99 of the b- bullet holes of the 100 bullet holes were fired into the apartment and there was only a single one fired out and it was into the ceiling and that was probably from mark clark when he got shot he fired around in the ceiling as he you know fell down to die um so really, their their whole goal was just to start murdering and locking up anyone in the, in this movement.
0: Yeah, like very fierce repression, and this is a coordinated effort between uh, local law enforcement, uh, federal law enforcement, and state law enforcement. So this wasn't existing in a vacuum. So that's when I was watching that Ted Bundy documentary, and it's just like we didn't have the technology to like find this guy at the time. We killed like probably over a hundred women uh, or more, and like you guys are using all those resources to repress black liberation in this country so that's when people are just like oh my god you know leftists never win and it's like yes because all the forces are the reactionary forces are, are come against them when they start to organize especially when you're talking about you know uh cross-racial cross-class solidarity that's when it's like the powers that be are like oh my god the peasants are rising up and they're realizing they're getting fucked by us so we got a quick divide and conquer
1: <laughs> yeah exactly
0: and they were afraid of Fred Hampton like the most because he would be Newton, despite being very intelligent and, you know, um, creating the Black Panther Party. Uh, you know, in this country, we, we at the, especially at that time, it was leader leaders, really led movements. Um, you had people like Dr. King, Malcolm X. Um, you had Angela Davis, who was well spoken, um, you know, even even the reason they chose um, Rosa Parks. I think we talked about that in one of our earlier podcasts is podcast it was because how she was be able to present to the public uh up New wasn't a good speaker um so you know he had very good ideas and he could write a lot um about his ideas but kind of verbalizing them he wasn't the best um a speaker at all fred hampton kind of was a, a great orator um not so much kind of like a he didn't write a lot of things down he had a lot of great ideas but he could verbalize them so you know everybody has their strengths and you know when you have revolutionary movements, you kind of need some of everybody. You need the thinkers, you need the orators, you need all type of activists. But I think that's what you
1: need the the charismatic speakers. Yes, and I think which yeah sorry. Go well, ahead. That, and they
0: can bring their ideas, complex ideas, to the masses. And he was young, so he was able to kind of translate to youth culture at the time. So, but that's what made him dangerous. They saw him has like his internalized documents that saw the rise of like the new black messiah at the you know after the death of dr that's king that's what the
1: fbi referred to they like we need to stop the rise of a bl- of of the new black messiah and really that meant fred because he was you know he started the rainbow coalition he was doing a great job running the chicago branch of the black panther party he was the new rising star he was i personally believe he would have been bigger than martin luther king if he would have been able to live longer yeah cuz like we got to think um, you know
0: the the craziest thing to think about is i'm about to be 38 this year and Dr. King and Malcolm X both died at thirty-nine, um, and I'm thinking like, crazy. What's even crazier is with Fred Hampton. He was, you know, murdered in 1970 on December fourth, I believe. Uh, 69. Sixty-nine. Okay, December fourth. Okay. Yep. Yeah, my bad. Um, he was only 21 when he was killed, so he he still had so much like fucking life to live, uh, not just like with his political activism, but. You know, he, had a, he has a son, Fred Hampton Jr., and you know, he had his fiancée. So, like, he never saw his, sons grow, his son grow up, um, miss his anniversaries with his fiancée, um, friends and families he had. Like, he never gets, like, his life was not was not lived, all because he wanted to, like, liberate his people. And not just his people, but oppressed people across the globe. So, what a, like, a pro-social, he died for, like, being very pro-social. Like, we could change the material conditions of all of us and you know he worked across racial lines and, and and worked across and he went to like gang territory and organized truth truth like that's like that's some badass shit and you know this man didn't get a chance to live so that's that's what made the black panthers dangerous and then i only talk about their um cross-racial solidarity they were also organizing internationally so brian and i talked about some chapters opened up in other countries they were meeting with you know dignitaries and um, revolutionaries uh, from all across the globe and you know it's kind of like what Malcolm X did in the in the in the early 60s uh, when he was you know in touch with you know the Cuban revolutions um, the different African revolutions that was happening in Kenya and, and in the Middle East and and the Black Panthers are also doing the same thing with anti-imperialist movements across the, across the globe uh, sharing in solidarity and one time Huey P Newman was on trial for the murder of um, officer I think it was Stephen Frey or something like that Um he had, you know, um, some, you know, revolutionary Asian groups in California were joining the free Huey movement. Um, you know, white celebrities, you know, activist celebrities, stuff like that were joining the free Huey movement. So this is they crossed like all these lines, despite the fact that the media did their best to like, to to discredit them, to be like, this group is anti white. They hate white people. They want to kill white people. And they were the exact opposite. They were the true anti-racist organization. And, you know, we can talk about kind of in my philosophy about life. A lot of the the, the being more of a having an egalitarian um, outlook on the world. Um, it was shaped by, you know, studying and learning about the Black Panthers um, because they, you know, were a group that speak out about sexism, to speak about speak out against racism and how like being racist and trying to fight. So and we can we can get into the nitty gritty of it. Like you know, black folks can't be racist. Uh, we, we don't benefit from like our skin color. We don't benefit from our race. We can be, we can discriminate. We can be prejudiced towards other groups of people, but we don't benefit from racism. Only like only white people will benefit from racism.
1: Yeah. Cause it's like a structural, like structural racism benefits. Exactly. From so that
0: that's, that's the difference. But, But I think what they should have said, but, you know, it was was simple. You can't fight racism with racism. You got to have your your message that can reach the masses really quickly. You can't get into the academic debates. So that that, that changed my thinking. Um, Their LGBTQ rights talk about, you know, gay liberation, um, which we had, you know, in the era of the Black Panthers, I think in 1969, you had Stonewall, Riot, and in New York, um, which kind of led to the, you know, uh, gay rights movements that, that kicked off really in the 70s, but that was a spark. Um, they talked about that in the 1960s, so like, uh, in a very crude way, if you read Huey P. News reading readings about all these things, but it was still kind of—
1: The language sounds crude by today's, by today's standards, standards, but his message was still on Yeah, paint. and that, that's the thing. So these and this, they were teaching this to all the Panthers
0: because uh, it was in their literature. And the resources, and kind of you know analyzing this capitalist system, they even ones that think think about like putting a black face on, on the imperialistic powers, and seeing how black folks, in certain positions of privilege, can become just like the oppressors. So we don't want to, and they were like we don't want to take, we don't want to fight white oppression to replace it with black oppression. And when they mean black oppression, they mean of the bourgeoisie, the elites the 1% of black folks ruling over the rest of the poor masses of black people. Cause it's like, we, we saw countries like that and in, in the Caribbean, in Africa, where it's a rich, small black elite class that rules over all the peasants. And they were like, no, we, we need complete total revolution where the masses, you know, are, are taken care of. and, we've turned that, out capitalist systems.
1: I think the Black Panthers are my favorite civil rights organization cuz they from the very beginning understood the root causes of racism and thing. I think even Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, you know, initially they were, you know, and rightfully so needed to be done was for you know, black rights and, and fighting black oppression, but I think it wasn't for both of them till a little bit later in their life they understood how economics drives this and everything. Where the Black Panthers from the very beginning, they were very hip to to that knowledge, and I, and, I, I just and I think really we got to think about it. it. I mean,
0: obviously, all thinking about this happened in the '60s, so to us, they're all old. But when the when Huey P. Newton and Bobby Seale founded the Black Panther Party, they were like they were college students, they were young. Mm-hmm. So you know, Dr. King and Malcolm X were in their 30s, so they came from a, a different era. So they were the new generation. So it's kind of like these. Zen, gen, Zen, Generation Z or Zoomers or what they call them uh, they'll be kind of more it's the ones who are revolutionary in their thinking radical in their thinking will even be more progressive than you know myself or you uh, which I know to some of our family members and friends it's like hard to believe like oh my god Brian Alert destroying America every single day <laughs> destroying America everything we stand for but um th- that's kind of how it goes so I'm very hopeful about our, our younger generation, not to romanticize them, because there will be some conservative Tommy Lauren type assholes and, and Ben Shapiro's that will come out of that generation, like every generation. But um, the folks who always, the generation um, above or like below the next generation is always a little more progressive in their thinking. So that's why they could, you know, later down the roots of uh, um, LGBTQ liberation, women's liberation. Inter intercommunalism, um, socialism, dem- black li- black, black liberation, liberation. Uh, yeah. fighting fighting racism with anti racism, uh, police control of the community, and one of the most funniest things I think about the black when I think about the Black Panther Party, because uh, one of the things you hear conservatives, especially like since the since the Reagan era, is you know do not they pull themselves up by their own bootstrapping Stop taking handouts. Talk about a most self black folks being self sufficient. Creating their own communities, feeding their own communities, doing clothing drives, um, creating uh, health care
1: clinics. And look how the government came down on creating them.
0: Creating libraries and, and classes. And the fucking government... Same thing with them.
1: Tulsa, Oklahoma, dude. Like, any time black people did try and pull them... up And that's where I'm talking about where we need to fight for peace. Because any time black people did try and become self reliant and pull them up, so themselves up by their own bootstraps, they were fucking crushed and suppressed. It's... it's you, you can't, you know, just passively accept something if a boot's on your neck you got to get that fucking boot off your neck you know
0: exactly so that that's that's the thing that always like just makes me i'm like wow um how how can you guys sit and say this and when people actually when black people have tried to do this they've been completely repressed like crushed
1: yeah Well, I mean, I think that kind of leads into, so, you know, we like to end with solutions. Did you have anything, you know, you wanted to add before we kind of talk about modern day and how we can learn from the Black Panthers? Um,
0: Yeah, I think I've covered just about kind of what I wanted to talk about as far as the Black Panthers. I I just want to emphasize that they really shape my political thinking and thoughts. And there's lots of information about them, lots of great documentaries. And I really, you know, me and Brian are not saying that they were all saints; they were all perfect. Obviously, they weren't. I talked about Edges Cleaver. Uh, Huey P. Newtons had his issues. I think a lot of his issues stem from the fact that he was spent most of his time locked up for years.
1: Agreed. I think when he was in isolation for so long, he was never really quite the same. After exactly. That.
0: So, you know, the thing is, it's circumstances and and the folks that you know they've they've oppressed. Our sister Shahid Shakur is still in um, in Cuba to this day. Um, You know, they tried to, you know, lock up Angela Davis and, you know, it was kind of sad to see her, you know, stomping so hard for like Joe Biden. Because like Trump is bad, Uh, her and Noam Chomsky, but definitely Angela Davis. That kind of hurt because I'm like, come on, sister, you know, you know, this man is like a wreck. He would, if you were, your young self would call him a reactionary force Uh, because he, because he is. So, you know, just because like Trump is, the bar is so low with Trump doesn't mean like, you know, the next person with the boot on the neck is, like, better. Well, you know, they might have a boot on my neck, but, you know, at least every time they lift it up and give me a little bit of water versus the one who just has, like, their boot on my neck and doesn't give me any water. I'm still going to die either way. One is just a slower death.
1: Yeah, What the Black Panthers did for me, too, like you were talking about them shaping your ideology, for me, it was... They gave me I guess I guess ultimately you can just call it like help me expand my empathy, but one, it gave me a sense of urgency I never had before, you know, so just growing up a white you know white straight male you know in a decent suburb, it was you you never have the urgency of someone who's actually really on you know really under under horrible oppression. I mean, we're all under oppression in this economic system, but not to the degree of other people, so seeing and hearing these stories really gave me an urgency that I didn't have before. And it gave me a little bit of, somewhat like Fred Hampton and and Huey Newton in his book, like some of that shit is so inspirational. And a lot of time being a revolutionary, just talking about society, trying to change society, it can be very lonely. A lot of the times people just look at you like you're a crazy person. You're off on your own. You'll post something on Facebook. It'll get one, one like. So it can be very lonely where the Black Panthers gave me a sense of pride in fighting the system you know um but i mean so to modern day things we can learn from them um you know based off the black panthers um one i would recommend is everyone i just i know i always say this but just read history because history is full of these unknown groups and people like the black panthers where the the rulers wipe them away but they're there if you search for them um, and, you know, start with yourselves because it's always interesting to learn about yourself. So if you're, if you're a black dude, learn about black history in America. If you're a Mexican dude, learn about Mexican history in America. You know, white people... You know, rightfully so. Sometimes we get a bad rap in the country, but there were plenty of white heroes. You know, there, there was um, John Brown, uh, the abolitionist. There were white people that worked with the civil rights movement who went out there at sit-ins and got beat and everything. So start with your own history and and really learn, because y- you'll find that you, you have a bunch of heroes that you don't even know exist. And that was the case for the Black Panthers with me. Yeah, and, and I, th- I, I think another thing is um,
0: one day there are there these things are connected so the things that the black panthers are talking about in the 1960s and 70s are still unfortunately the societal ills they discuss are still with us today they just manifest themselves a bit differently so you know in the in the 1960s the idea of a black president would have been sci-fi so we live in a post-obama world um but yet we're still dealing with these things and they kind of warned us about it like you know they can have a black face on the the systems of oppression and to, you know, do full inclusion and don't be fooled by that. You know, understand that the struggle for liberation is true liberation, isn't just like, Oh yeah, we have this person of color, a woman in this position. So everything's fine now. And it's like, oh no, is that what is, what is that person's philosophy? What's that person's politics? How do they relate to people? What is their empathy? Are they, are they just there to, you know, further just be a black face on, on oppression imperialism then think about that but also i think what really is inspiring about the black panther party is that these were folks from their everyday community that you know banded together and saw a problem and 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 fought to address those problems. so you don't have to be from the best universities you don't have to have like fancy degrees you can just be a regular person who wants to see change in your community so they were a very you know to to the truest form a grassroots organization that you know started from from nothing and influenced, you know international politics so that's that's inspiring so that that shows you that regular people when they come together as groups and organize with each other um, you can change the world
1: so exactly and i and i also and you touched on a little bit but their their service to the community I mean, that's ultimately what about it's about. The most rewarding things you'll do in life is helping other people. It, it's, it's its it's own reward to help other people. And they really focused on finding out what how to improve the lives of their community and then work to those goals. And, you know, so that's – we get lost sometimes. You know, I've seen a lot, too, with, like, movements. There's a lot of infighting because people get their own ego involved and, you know, want to be seen, a, you know, a certain way. And really at the end of the day, if we aren't trying to help our fellow man, like, you know, what the fuck are we doing? And I appreciate that about the Panthers. And me too. I mean, and I I think kind of going out that I,
0: sometimes people in this country, when they think of revolutionaries, you know, they think of Che Guevara in the mountains with the guns, him and Fidel uh, fighting against the Batista regime. And that's, you know, that's, you know, that's romanticized thinking about revolution. You know, the black Panthers, this isn't all, you know, glory and stuff. You know, those breakfast programs, those people getting up early in the morning, putting together those those hot meals, cooking those cooking those grits and uh, oatmeal and bacon. And it was people putting together, you know, lunches for the young people, free clinics, setting that up, the paperwork you had to go through. They had to get building permits and all these things. So none of that stuff's fun. Um, None of that stuff is glamorous, but it's all about part of the revolution. And they had to work with different people. It wasn't just like the Black Panthers. They had to work with different groups, as we mentioned, like the Young Lords, the Young Patriots, the Brown Berets. Um, the, the, the churches that we mentioned, um, even, even some political figures, um, even if they're not perfect, uh, if they're, that they are allies in some things, you know, utilize them as tools. So it's this glorious thing that all revolutionaries have to be on their own and changing things. That's like a very kind of like the, it's kind of like the hero worship we talked about in our podcast of one person saving everybody, everybody. And in the case of the black Panthers, it shows you that, um, it, it can just be individuals coming together and creating, you know, organizations to, to fight against systematic oppression. And what's inspiring is seeing the, the movement for Black Lives Matter. And then what they learned from the 60s <coughs> is being a leaderless movement. Because when you had the, you know, uh, catcher of Huey P. Newton, putting him in jail, or uh, Eldridge Cleaver, you know, leaving to go to Algeria, or Angela Davis uh, being put on trial and almost put in jail, or a Shakur fleeting, fleeing or them killing, um, Fred Hampton when he was only, it's a young man, like 21. I mean, it's crazy, um, that they learn now these movements occupy black lives matter. That it is great to have a charismatic leader. You know, they can, they can, they can share your philosophy to the masses and they can have a face on that. But what happens? We can be like Bobby Rush. You can sell out or you sell out or or get killed. killed.
1: I mean, you know, <laughs> jail and bury those committed, and smother the rest. In exactly.
0: Grief. So that that's the problem. So when you have a leaderless movement, people can be like, "I don't understand your message. I don't understand what is your message." And those are people just being kind of like, they're just being. Tr-
1: they're going to find a way to yeah.
0: yeah, and and nowadays we have something they didn't have back then. They they have Google. You have Bing. You have you know libraries you can go to and understand that. Uh, YouTube videos. You can even YouTube some of the um, speeches from. Fred Hampton, you can f- um, Google some of the speeches from Huey P. Newton, Bobby Seale, all all these folks and and talks and stuff they've had over the years, debates. So all this stuff is available at your fingertip right fingertips right now. So there is no. So to say Just I don't steer
1: clear of Wikipedia. Yeah. Anything Wikipedia is fine. If you want to find like sciencey or anything, but anything history related Wikipedia sucks. Yeah. <laughs> you gotta te- read a book. I'm sorry. Take it, take it with <laughs> a
0: grain of salt. Um, they, but they, we all yeah. have some great articles and stuff like that linked into the, uh, into our, to our podcast. But I think that's the greatest thing they took from that. those movements is like learning that like having a leader, identifiable leader, has its pros but the the biggest cons is they can sell out the movement or they can be corrupted or they can just be killed. And when it's a leaderless movement, um has Fred Hampton said, you know, you can kill the revolutionary but you can't kill the idea. Mm-hmm. So the idea of the revolution is already there. Um so you got to kind of make that shit like the hydra. You know, cut off one head of the snake, another one grows. Yeah. So it's just an idea. That was
1: such another good quote that he had that I forgot about how you you can you can uh kill the revolutionary, but you can't kill the revolution. You can kill a freedom fighter, but you can't kill freedom. Uh, that, that one, there's actually a video of online. So I'll share the link too. Cause it's fucking awesome. Um, but speaking of which you want to do your quote or you want me to go with mine?
0: Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll go with my quote. So, um, I, I guess we, 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 Brian and I definitely have a, a admiration for this, um, small group of revolutionaries that came together in the late sixties, uh, and changed the world. Um, you know, politics in general, um, black culture in general, um, came together. The Jimi Hendrix, one of his most famous songs, Machine Gun, <laughs> is an inspiration, um, from the war. In, it's an anti war song about the war in Vietnam, but also it has double meaning. It's also talking about the, the soldiers fighting here in the United States, and those soldiers were, were the Black Panthers. So he opened every every song, every Rendition of Machine Gun with, you know, this song is dedicated to the soldiers fighting in Chicago, Milwaukee, L.A., yeah, all, and all the soldiers fighting in Vietnam. So it was about, you know, revolution and how, you know, instead of killing our brothers, we should be loving our brothers and, and sisters um, and, and just our fellow human being. So and I think that's what the Black Panthers mean to me is kind of revolutionary love. So the quote I'm going to read is a a tattoo I have, um, but it's also a poem by Hugh P. Newton called Revolutionary Suicide. And it reads as such, by having no possessions, I have possessed all by rejecting the love of one. I received the love of everyone. By having no family, I've inherited the family of humanity. By surrendering my life to the revolution, I have found eternal life, revolutionary suicide. And he kind of further defines that poem. And Huey says, Revolutionary suicide does not mean that I and my comrades have a death wish. It means just the opposite. We have such a strong desire to live with hope and human dignity that existence without them is impossible. So when reactionary forces crush us, we must move against these forces, forces even with the risk of death. We will have, we will have to be driven out with a stick. So I, I like that just...
1: That was super inspiring to me, too, because I'll admit, you know, sometimes I can be a moral coward and I can believe something, but I kind of keep it to myself because I'm afraid of how it'll react. People will react to me. But, you know, Huey Newton lays it out there. You can, you know, if you know things are, if you're being oppressed and you know things aren't just, if you... If you just curl up and roll over and keep it to yourself, that's its own form of suicide because you're not living your full truth. You're not living your full life. So you might as well choose a revolutionary suicide where, yeah, it might be bad for you. You might die, but you should do it because the opposite. Either way, it's a form of suicide, you know, but why not, you know, the whole, why don't you live life standing up rather than living on your knees, you know? Yes,
0: Emilio Zapata. I'd rather, I'd rather live a lifetime on... I'd rather die on my feet than live a lifetime on my knees. So, another yeah. quote. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Exactly, though. And uh, mine is from Bobby Seale. Um, he was given a speech, and the whole thing's good. I'll share the link, but I just wanted to kind of cut it down. So, leading up to this quote, he was kind of talking about the environmental movement and how it was tied to the human rights movement. And he said, we can speak of pollution in terms of the of historical pollution of fascism, the historical pollution of war, the historical pollution of hunger in the world, the historical pollution of murder, the historical pollution that we, the people, poor, oppressed people, this world all over have been subjected to for too many years. That is the pollution. That's the basis of the pollution of nature, of the world, of the universe. The only solution to pollution is a people's humane revolution. And it. uh." just touches on what the Black Panthers knew is that like all these different movements and, and fights for justice, they're all connected. So we should all be working together. Um, because it's, it's all the same problem at the end of the day. All right, but thanks, Learnette. Um, Thank you everyone for listening. If you're interested in learning more about the topic, uh, please follow us on Facebook at Q Culture one and Twitter at QCulture. Q there will be posting the links to the documentaries, books and articles we mentioned in this episode. Also, don't forget to check out Lornette's blog, The Evolving Man Project, his new book, Eve and the Faders, and uh, make sure to check out the first history edition of Question Culture uh, with myself and my brother Steve. Thanks again, everyone, for listening, and remember to question everything. or opinions expressed on this podcast belong solely to Brian and Lornette and do not represent those of people, institutions, or organizations that Brian and Lornette may or may not be associated with in any professional or personal capacity unless explicitly stated.